Good day, fellow investors. Welcome to the Modern Value Investing Podcast with Sven Karlin, where we compound investment returns as well as investment knowledge in order to help you achieve your financial goals. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the channel. Today, we have a very special guest. This is Sven Karlin from the Value Investing with Sven Karlin YouTube channel. He has an absolutely awesome channel that I've been following for years. And I was just telling Sven, I feel like this has been a long time coming. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here. All right. So today we are going to be talking about overall views on the market today and then our outlook for 2024. What are some of the best and worst investments we have both ever made and ETFs versus stocks? So on that theme, just diving right into it, since everyone is kind of wondering about the market right now with kind of how crazy it is. What are your views on the market today? That there is plenty of money in the system and therefore financial assets are still pushed higher and higher. And just to give you a different view, the price earnings ratio of the S&P 500 is around 25 of the Hong Kong index is around eight. <laughs> so yeah. we have the old world, old people, uh, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, very expensive, all with money. And we have the developing world, Asia. I don't know if you have been there, but I would argue that everyone should go there and see what's going on in Asia is trading at a P ratio of eight. The last time the S&P 500 traded at that level was in 1982. And all those that invested did very well. <laughs> yeah, so I actually went to Asia for a few months at the beginning of 2023, and I completely agree with you. I think everyone should go there. And in specific, when I was in Cambodia and in Vietnam, the level of economic growth going on is absolutely insane. There's skyscrapers going up everywhere. I could not even believe what I was seeing. So it is very interesting. I agree with you. I think um, you also go through the JP Morgan Guide to the Markets every once in a while on your channel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you take a look at the JP Morgan Guide to the Markets, China and Asia in specific, their PE ratios are, as you said, at eight, well below historical averages, while the US markets are selling above averages and at these pretty high PE ratios, I would agree with you. Yeah. And as they say, the market can stay irrational, irrational more than you can stay liquid. So it's very hard to fight it. So you cannot be smart about it. Or you can then see you buy something in Asia at a peerage of 10 and then see it go to 8 and you're 20% down while everyone else with the Bitcoin and everything is making money. So uh, that's investing, I guess. It is in the short term for sure being yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. down and uncomfortable with positions for a little bit. So are you bullish on a China then? Because there's a lot of fear, I would say, around Chinese stocks. They're trading very cheap on a fundamental basis. So what are your thoughts around them? I'm never bullish or bearish on a general market. I prefer, as Charlie Munger said, you go fish where the fish is. So it's much easier to fish, let's say, in Asia with P ratios of eight, and then you look through lists or what fits you best personally, and there you can put some of your money. Mm -hmm. So I cannot say I'm bullish. Yes, those stocks should go up. Maybe those stock stocks won't go up for five years. 
while the S&P 500 can double in five years. So that's always the, let's say, short term. But I always look for things globally and uh, I like commodities. I just analyzed lithium stocks that were the hot stocks a year ago. Now nobody wants to touch them. And then I go and look. So also with Asia and uh, things like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Try not to apply a whole general idea to the whole market in China. I would actually agree with you as well. I, I don't really trust a lot of these smaller Chinese companies, but the larger ones I feel a lot more comfortable with. So yeah, I would, I would agree with that too. You have to see what, what fits you. And especially from what I sensed with the comments with people is how much and if. I'm always telling people, if you're not comfortable investing some of your money in China, don't do it. Mm -hmm. There will be other opportunities. If you have your dollars, US treasuries are giving 5%. You don't have to do anything. And in the next year, two, three years, something will come that fits you. So it's not like we must rush there or something like that. For now, it looks cheap. It looks promising. There are definitely risks. You never know what will happen there. With the smaller companies, I always tell people, you need to speak Chinese to understand what's <laughs> going on with the smaller companies. Yeah. You need to be on the field. You need to see really, are those offices there? Aren't they, et cetera, et cetera. We had some analysis, I think it was 2019. The company had great presentations, growing presentations. And then a customer sent me a few pictures of their offices in those new cities that they were expanding. It was just a label like this and there was nobody ever going there. So that stock obviously went to zero. Yeah, yeah, and I that's what I mean is I feel like there's more of that over in the Chinese market with some of the smaller caps. There was another one actually that I was interested in in 2021 and same thing. I saw a short report where someone actually went to the office buildings and took screenshot or sorry, images and it was just not what they were putting in their investor presentations at all. And that stock is down probably 95% too. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like there's some of that over there. You're in Europe, correct? Yes. Okay. So do you invest in European businesses then? No, I invest globally. I have uh, now one European business, one Asian, two European businesses and uh, one Asian, so that's about it. Okay. Yeah, because I've been hearing that the European market is quite on the cheaper end right now as well. Yeah, I have a friend that called, and I have to make a video about it, he called Europe a sick old man <laughs> living in woke denial. <laughs> so when it gets to Europe, I think America is America, has the strength of the dollar and everything. Asia is booming and you have Europe in between yeah. living in some kind of denial. So I don't know how it will uh, look like here in 10, 15 years, but for now it's going good. I hope it stays good, but I'm not just going to invest in Europe because of the relative cheapness. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was hearing- And the good companies are expensive, very expensive. Yeah, I would also agree with that because I heard someone say that Europe was value right now. So then I started taking a look 
in some basic screeners and I was like, all the good businesses that I would actually be interested in are not actually cheap. No, no, so, no, no, no. Yeah. It's, those old uh, legacy businesses that um, have no direction or growth, those are cheap, but are cheap for a reason. I would agree with that. Yeah. So yeah. on your channel, you also started, I believe it was a $1 million portfolio, right? Am I, yeah, am I correct? Yeah, there? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I have to thank you for that because I actually saw you do this. And then on my channel, I think it was a couple of months later, I did the exact same thing. I thought it was a really good idea. So thank you for doing that. How is the portfolio doing? Uh, we made a few transactions. So I think I started it last summer, so a year and something. So it is up, I think, 20%. But now I have only one position in it. So. I found it very, very difficult to manage a portfolio like that on YouTube because I'm a person of free investments, mm -hmm. not more. And apart from my YouTube channel, I have a research platform and I show my top free investments there. And then doing a portfolio where I show the fifth to the tenth investment simply didn't feel well with me. And um, you buy something, it goes down, then you have 50 comments about that stock going down and you buy something and it goes up, you have no comments that it went up, oh, thank you, I made money. And therefore it requested so much emotional effort that I think I'll scale it down. I don't know how you are doing with managing a portfolio on YouTube. I go through similar things for sure. I've experienced the comments, as you said, um, it's interesting that you, so in your portfolio, you only hold three businesses then? Yeah, yeah, three, four, enough. I am following Warren Buffett by the best idea you have and uh, that's it. Yeah, that's the Charlie Munger portfolio too. <laughs> he likes to have about yeah, four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to, you have to accept more volatility. Yeah. So um, I'm fine with being down 20, 30% in a given year. But when things work out, you do well. And that's uh, that's how it goes then. Yeah. Okay. So then the YouTube portfolio, it sounds like you would have, I did check out one of your videos a while ago and I believe you did have about 10 or more positions. So yeah, yeah I tried to do it in an educational way, mm -hmm. try to do it that it shows the risk and reward and something. But then I understand it was all just for entertainment. Mm. Okay. And I felt that, okay, we can entertain, we can discuss, but uh, it was too fake to me. It was a demo portfolio and uh, simply didn't fit my uh, personality. So you test something, you see how it goes. And then uh, I prefer to, I make the analysis, I show you this is the risk and reward, and then you see how it fits you. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My, the portfolio on my channel as well as a demo portfolio and it also is not 100% a replication of my personal portfolio because I like to invest in smaller cap businesses that tend to have lower volume, a lot more volatility, and they're just not stocks that I would ever talk about on a YouTube channel. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I have a pretty large position or a large allocation in my portfolio to businesses like that. So again, you know, on the YouTube channel, it's not a true reflection of my actual portfolio. And also small caps, uh, Asian stocks. You, we started this chat with 
Asia and China, you'll get hammered in the comments <laughs> because it's forbidden to discuss that on YouTube. Yes. So that's also, there's so much weighing there. What can I say? What I can't say? Then I think I love my life better not to do some things where it costs too much effort and uh, you do things that uh, work and that's it. Yeah, fair enough. I completely understand that as well. So if you have a very concentrated portfolio, it sounds like, what are some of the best and worst investments you've ever made if you're comfortable sharing? Uh, well, I started investing now 22 years ago. So okay. uh, the first two stocks I bought when I was uh, 20, one went up five times and the other went up 10 times. So I was... I looked at these companies, I liked it, and I bought it and waited, and uh, just the market boomed, and then I sold, and I made a lot of money. So that could be the best investments I've made. And the worst investment, I think, from a return perspective, it was not much mo money, but I invested in shipping stocks in 2009. Mm, okay. I didn't understand the business, didn't understand the cycle, so... When you don't know something, I was just seeing that company is trading at a P ratio of two and the ships are worth, I don't know, 100 million and the company is trading at 20 million. And then I said, this must be value investing. But I didn't understand that the value of the ships also fluctuates and the company went bankrupt five years after that. Okay. Did you hold the stock all the way into bankruptcy then? Yes, yes, yes. I still have some shares, but I told you it wasn't that much money, but it was a great lesson about what and how to invest in something. But perhaps the worst, worst investment was uh, selling Apple in 2017. Oh, no. I bought, I made an analysis in 2016. I think I even wrote an article on Seeking Alpha, Apple for the next 40 years. And then I bought something and um, a year later, oh, I made money. I'm such a genius. I'm so smart. And then I sold. Wow. So what was <laughs> what was the reason for selling then? Was it just too expensive for you? No, it went just went up and uh, I don't know, stupidity. Yeah. I've actually heard that a lot of people's biggest investment mistakes is selling a great business too early. I have I have a client, he invested a lot of money in Amazon at 2002 and sold three months later for 30% profits. Oh, no. He said that that day he felt as a genius, but uh, okay, the rest is history. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's also something that I kind of struggle with in my own portfolios is if I buy a stock and then it gets up to a crazy price, Adobe is actually a good example. I bought it in 2022 when it was falling. I thought it was undervalued. And then the stock went up, I believe it's over 100% now, and I ended up selling it on this massive run. And I got a lot of, I'll say feedback in my comment section of people saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. This is a great business. You should hold it for the long term. But when I look at the free cash flow yields on that business, after it ran over a hundred percent, I was, I got uncomfortable with how expensive it got. So that's one thing that, I mean, honestly, the only real way to see if it was the right decision or not is just to wait. But 
yeah, I, I kind of struggle with that on my channel. Well, it depends on the valuation on other opportunities because you need to manage the risk and reward of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Apple was clearly a mistake because the stock went up, but the business also improved constantly. Mm -hmm. And then you had the fundamentals follow the stock till about, I think, last year. And then the stock should to over the fundamentals. So now I would, I would say, say Apple is overvalued. But in the last six, seven years, it was constantly following. And Adobe, I don't know, the stock just went up, then down, and then up, but the fundamentals are not following as fast as the stock. So we had this boom, exuberance, then crash, and now we're back to exuberance. I would agree with that. I actually recently did a video on Adobe going over it again. And the profits basically have not risen in the past 18 to 24 months now, while the stock has gone up, crashed, and gone yeah, right back uh, up to all-time uh, highs. So again, it was when I purchased it, I believe it was trading for a around a 5.5% free cash flow yield. And then the stock recovering was 100% multiple expansion and not fundamental growth. So for yeah. me, that's when I was like, yeah, it might so be. Yeah, <laughs> holding something at a two point five percent cash flow yield means that it has to grow. I don't know four times in the next ten years to justify the valuation. Now, exactly. That's exactly how I think about it too. <laughs> so, uh... yeah, it's it's the same story with um, Microsoft. Over the past decade, its price to free cash flow has compounded, I believe, at 16% per year now. And it's trading for 44 times cash flow, 2.2% cash flow yield. And at some point, I've been saying this on my channel, at some point, that multiple expansion has got to stop. It cannot continue on. If it if it compounds at 16% annually over the next de decade, it'll trade for a 200 price to free cash flow, which is just, I don't think that's going to happen. So. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. You are absolutely correct. Yes. But I'm <laughs> not going to bet my pension on it. No, no. And that brings us back to the S&P 500 being a little bit overvalued. I would kind of agree with you because the, the mega cap stocks right now are quite expensive, in my opinion. I was listening to this interview on Yahoo and the interviewer himself from Yahoo said, I'm putting all my money, extra money in the SAP 500, not even thinking about it. Pension funds invest by weight. So if you work somewhere, your money goes into a pension fund and they automatically invest the most money into the SAP 500. And simply it's just built up, built up, built up and nobody's thinking. And I hope for all of the people out there that it just continues like that for another two decades and everybody at least holds their purchasing power and everything. That's my most positive scenario that I can hope for. Yeah. Yeah, that brings up another interesting conversation where it seems like the consensus over the past, I would say, five to 10 years has become Buy the S&P 500, don't think about it. It's an obvious investment and it will make you 10% per year. And it seems yeah. to be what almost everyone does now. But that also kind of suggests that maybe it's not actually the best thing to do anymore. 
as I told you, I have been investing for 20 years, which means I have seen 2000, 2002, when yes. it fell 50%. And 2007, from October to 2009, when again it fell 50 percent. I, 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 I sound old, but the S&P 500 hit rock bottom at 666 points in March 2009. That's 666 points, and now we are trading at 4,000 soon 666. So 4,000 points have been created in 14 years. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a, that's almost a 7x, if not more. Yeah, 7x <laughs> from bottom to current in 13 years. That's that's 90% of stock market returns for the last 100 years have been created in the last 10 years. And those buying now are buying at the peak of this best bull market ever in history. Mm -hmm. How it will end I don't even want to think about it. As I said, I hope it it further continues forever, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was listening to a Charlie Munger interview, I believe it was. I think it was within the past two years, and he was saying that he thinks we could go through another five to 10 years of no returns in the overall S&P 500. Uh, that's also what Miller says already, has been saying for two years that the most likely outcome is no returns, especially no real returns for a decade. Mm -hmm. We are now already two years into that, but people still think there will be 10% up every year. We will see. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I actually feel more comfortable in individual stocks now than buying ETFs. Definitely, and that was also the best strategy during the 1970s when the S&P 500 did nothing for 15 years, those that invested in value stocks made 10x. If you bought the lowest P and PB stocks out there during the 70s, 10x. In better than the S&P 500 that did nothing. So sooner or later, these valuations adjust sooner or later. Mm -hmm. And if the Fed doesn't push rates down, then valuations have to adjust because what's now priced in is that in the next year, two years, the Fed will push interest rates down to 2% and that would justify a P ratio of 25. But if that doesn't happen, then the P ratio for current interest rates should be around 14, 15. And that's a 40, 50% crash. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it or to put it. Yeah, I'm not, I personally don't think rates are going to go back down to 2%. I would, I would speculate. I have no idea. But if I had to guess, I would say maybe between 3 and 4%. I would, that is something you can think but i think that at some point the fed will completely lose control and we cannot even imagine what will happen because three percent two percent five percent that is something in control mm -hmm. but who is imagining a scenario where they totally lose control 
and every country in history that has done deficits, running deficits, printing money, has at some point lost control of that mechanism. Mm -hmm. yes, so it doesn't matter whether interest rates will be two, three, four, or five percent. If the Fed loses control, it matters where where will you get your potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good point. Every... So I hope they don't lose control and they know what they are doing. But when I see Yellen, I don't know. It's a retirement home would be better for her than running the treasury. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, every large world leading nation throughout history has fallen at some point. So, And it's always the same. Good times. Everyone wants to keep the good times going forever. And you keep the good times going by printing money and having zero interest rates. And as long as it goes, great. But uh, if I try to spend 20% more than I make, I will not last for longer than a few months. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> I so, can try, but... <laughs> so we'll see. With that being said, um, how are you planning to invest in 2024 and over the next few years then? Well, we have the expensive on one side. We have the cheap on the other side. So also in Europe, telcos in Europe are extremely cheap now. Every, anything that has debt is cheap. Asia is cheap. And I don't think there will be an end to the world and as we are living it now. There might be financial issues, crisis, purchasing power going down to normal levels because you cannot spend more than you make. But I think the world has always become a better place after a crisis. So accumulating wealth, as uh, Warren Buffett starts his uh, letters often, we now own 10 of the Fortune 500 companies. So it's not about where stock prices go up and down, but owning a little bit more of the world. And if you can own a little bit more of the world at each cycle, you increase your wealth. And that's all we can do. That's a very good way to put it. I'm happy to hear you say that, at least if the world does experience a major financial crisis with the United States, things we will get through it because I also completely agree with that sentiment. I, I like to remain a long-term optimist. So yes, something bad may happen. Asia, some countries in Asia may take over the world superpower. The US stops growing so quickly, whatever. But we will get through it. But life should, I have, I was born in uh, Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. then later became Croatia. And the GDP of my country didn't improve from 89 because we had the war and everything till 2012. So 25 years economic activity didn't improve, mm -hmm. but life was much, much better mm -hmm. because we had the internet, this, better cars, travel. So life improves, even if financials or GDP or economics don't tell you. So crisis should be around the corner because we are spending more that we are making. And that should even out 
at some point or future generations will have to pay in some way for that for the debt that we are creating but still life should be better overall mm -hmm. so would it be fair to say then that over the next few years you're still planning on continuing to buy more assets increase your your net assets that you own yes yes because i cannot time Mm -hmm. what will happen. Maybe the crisis will come in 2040. So we are now discussing that everything is overvalued, everything is expensive, but we have, we cannot predict a crash. Yes, it is risky owning it, but we cannot predict it. But it is even riskier not owning assets because there is one thing that we can predict with certainty, and that is that the value of currencies will go down, down and down and down because that's how currencies are made. So if you own assets, you are at least protected by the depreciation of the currency. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I completely and agree. If there is a crash, if you are below 60, you're happy, you reinvest your dividend, you own more of the world, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I always tell people on my channel, if you are a net buyer of stocks, then you should actually want them as low as possible. Yeah. Like, you should be buy, you should be happy if the S&P 500 would be at 1000 points now. Oh yes. Yes, now that everything has gone up over the past year, I'm like, well now this isn't as fun to buy anymore. No, <laughs> because you're thinking I'm paying double what I used to pay. Yeah. Everybody is happy that the dough be doubled. Yeah. Because it gives us dopamine and everything. But now if you're buying it, it costs twice as much. Yep. Yeah, they're plowing and basically all the free cash flow into buying back shares now as well. It's like they can buy back 2% of their shares a year now. Great. <laughs> it was four. It was four. Exactly. Yeah. And those and those things make the difference over the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so But we are not we are short-term oriented and we don't like to think over the long term mm -hmm. but buffett is a great teacher there just buy it let it but buy it at the right price at the beginning and then everything is easier yeah if you buy at the wrong price then things become complicated yes yes i completely agree and one thing that i've also seen in my comments especially when i sold adobe was people saying that you know, Warren Buffett preaches buy and hold forever, don't ever sell. But then if you go and read his, I believe it was his 2002 letter after the tech bubble crashed, he said that he was regretful that he did not sell some of his top stocks like Coca-Cola when it was trading for a 60 PE and then produced no yeah. returns for 13 years. I have, I have analyzed a little bit of Warren Buffett and he's actually selling nine out of his 10 positions. If you look at his positions 10 years ago, you will find nine that he doesn't hold now. So he purchases 10 stocks. He needs to own them to learn about them. And then he sells nine of his 10 positions. I think what was the store REIT that he bought yep. two, three years ago sold out. And if you just look through his portfolio, things disappear, IBM, Wells Fargo, all things that are not meeting his absolute top criteria disappear. 
Tesco in the UK. So he is buying a, what he thinks could be and then watching, likely talking to the management, seeing whether they are doing what should be done or could be done. And then if not, he simply sells. And I think he would sell also Apple, but the position is too big. Yeah, I've I've really wondered what his thoughts are on Apple today. And especially because he, I believe he was buying more in 2021. No, no, no. That was just accounting adjustments. He was okay. selling a little bit. And then if he buys some insurance company or something that has also Apple inside that has to be added to. So he wasn't buying like buying, buying. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that clarification then. I didn't I didn't dive into that too much deeper. I just saw him adding to it. There was also once a discussion discussion that Buffett bought gold. No, an insurance company that some of his insurance company owned had some gold for some transaction and that came out in Berkshire's uh, statement and then everybody said Warren Buffett is buying gold no Warren Buffett is not buying gold some insurer somewhere maybe got some gold who knows what and that's why it's there okay wow yeah that's very insightful yeah because it's a big company so you have to see how it moves yeah yeah because I was taking a look at the prices of Apple when that buy popped up on the 13f and I was I was like this is not like Buffett to be buying up here no, you have to see. You don't know who was buying or where, so it's not that easy. It's not that he spent a hundred billion on Apple. Yeah. Maybe some pension fund that they acquired through a reinsurance transaction, or who knows what. Yeah, that's that's a good point though. That he does tend to sell a lot of his positions, like airlines in 2020. He completely sold out of. He bought. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, I think it was two quarters later, completely sold it. So he is He's selling nine out of his 10 positions. Yeah. He buys, he learns about it, he sees how it feels to own it, and then sells out if it's not to his liking. Yeah, and I, um, have you read the book, The Snowball? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, in that book, I believe in his early years, he was buying and selling all the time as well. And he would have his entire portfolio in like one to three stocks. Yeah, yeah, he was really a value investor then. Yeah, he was very active, buying and selling all the time. So yeah, it's... So buy and hold for the long term, yes, but the right thing. I agree with that. I like to do kind of like a buy and verify. Buy it and then yeah, over time con it. continue verifying that it's still a good investment, still a good value. And, I and then agree. we don't have, he was owning 10% of Coca-Cola. Yes. If he had sold, then he would have destroyed the company. Yes. He is the biggest shareholder of Apple. If he sells, something's wrong, very wrong. Yeah. And then he could be accused of market manipula manipulation. If he sells Apple and the stock crashes 50% on his selling and he buys back, so he's a bigger player than uh, than we are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, getting back to what you said earlier on Adobe, which is the decision to sell also should be related to what other investment opportunities are out there. So if there are better opportunities out there, then that would increase 
the reason to sell. But if there was, let's say Adobe is selling for 2% cash flow yield, but everything else, even bonds, is at 0.5%, then in that scenario, I could see the the reason to hold on to Adobe. On that relative basis, yeah. okay. But if you have treasuries giving you 5.5% with, let's say, no risk, and you're holding a, something that's giving you 2% and can easily get back to 4% where it was six months ago. No margin of safety. <laughs> then you have to see how it how it fits you. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. So you're also someone who discusses margin of safety. And in my own experience on Twitter and in the financial space on social media, what I've noticed is there is not really one consensus on what a margin of safety is. So in your opinion, what, what do you believe a margin of safety is? If you really want the margin of safety is your own behavior. That's a great so answer. If the worst case scenario happens for that investment, how do you behave? If you can figure out that, then if that is okay, then you have a margin of safety. So for example, People have now 5 million invested in the S&P 500 for their pension fund. And I'm telling them, okay, over the next 20 years, it will be higher than it is now, great businesses, okay. But what happens if seven years from now, it is 50% down? Do you panic and sell then? Or do you buy more? And then people really start to think, okay, at first they panic and sell because they are afraid that it goes even lower and then their pension is gone. But if they can just keep accumulating what they already like for a lower price, that's a margin of safety. Okay, so... So it starts with the person and then on the businesses, of course, it's individual by business. You really, every business is different, so you need to analyze it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a totally unique answer, but I completely agree with it. <laughs> and that I see a lot, especially over the last few years and in the comments and everything. And uh, when some investment thesis goes bad, I see how people react on it. And then I see, okay, but that we knew it could happen it happened and i see so much frustration or something like that and then i think okay yes we are the worst enemies to our portfolio and therefore understanding that is the key margin of safety out there and then you try to look at things from a financial perspective a margin of safety mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I do in my portfolio before I buy any stock is I try to ask myself, if it falls 50%, will I view it as an opportunity or will I be scared and sell out of it? And then that gets me thinking about, okay, if that scenario actually plays out, then I have already thought about it. And then I would most likely be more likely to continue adding to my positions, which I have done in the past. So it seems to work. Depending also why did it fall. Exactly. You have to verify, hold and verify. Yeah, uh, uh, if it fell because, you know, it's moat declined or competitors disrupting it, that changes things. Now we have this um, drug retailer, Walgreens, that is also down, I don't know how much, 80% 
over the last few years and uh, I have looked at it and I cannot know whether it is a structural issue or just a temporal issue. If it's just an issue for now and it will rebound in two years, then it is a great buy. Mm -hmm. But if it is a real big business issue with Amazon competition and ordering online and less food traffic in the stores, then it will look uglier and uglier. So at some sometimes you cannot know. Just don't buy something just because it's lower. Absolutely. It's funny you say that. Walgreens is a stock I looked at, I think, a month ago. And I don't know how they're going to continue paying that dividend if something doesn't turn around. <laughs> that's, that's why it's so cheap. Yeah, that's... In my own analysis, I couldn't figure out what was going to happen to it. So I safe to say I avoided it. Well, that's also the same what I did. <laughs> yeah. But then I always tell people, statistically, you buy 20 of these turnarounds and you will likely make money at overall, over the 20. Yeah. But I... not one. Yeah. You have to buy a basket of them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, we're, I initially wanted to go for about 40 minutes. We're now over 40 minutes. So thank you for your time. Is, the, <laughs> is there anything that you would want to say to my channel or any words of wisdom that you would like to share with us, some closing thoughts? Well, I think that, as I said, the first thing when it comes to investing is starting with oneself. And what I see a lot, and especially on the comments and with stocks going up and down, and that's the key when it comes to investing. You only need to invest the money you will never ever need. So I'm telling people invest in stocks, but not the money you need, the money that can, if things develop well, improve the quality of your life. And if it doesn't happen, my life continues as is. If you are not in such a position at the current moment in time, you are in trouble. That's a very good point. So that's that's the first answer a person needs to have. Mm -hmm. If you are depending on the S&P 500 staying at these levels for your future quality of life, disaster is watching you. Yes. On that note, I actually had a friend who asked me a little while ago, a few months ago, they're saving up for their wedding and they're saving up for a home. And then they were asking me, where can I invest this money over the next year or two to produce a good return on it, then pull it out when I need it? And I, I told them over two years, you should not be investing it in anything other than bonds or some sort of similar risk-free investment vehicle. Bank account, bonds, and that's it. Yeah. But I, I fear that a lot of people do get into that mindset of, oh, S&P 500 goes up 10% a year. I'll throw this money I need next year into it, and it'll be great. And all the analysts are projecting 10% growth for the S&P 500. Yeah, JP Morgan upped their limit today, I saw, <laughs> or their yeah, price so, target. Uh, because they will get the fees on that wedding money. <laughs> yes, they will. And then if they have to postpone or delay or cancel the wedding, oh, who cares? Yep. <laughs> JP Morgan doesn't care. No. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on the thank channel. Thank you for having me. Yeah, everyone, seriously, go check out Sven Carlin, Value Investing with Sven Carlin on YouTube. Great channel. 
I've been watching your videos for years. I'm happy to have, sorry, happy to finally have you come on the channel. So again, just thank, thank you. you. It was my pleasure. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you again, and hope you all enjoyed the video, and see you next time. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments, please let me know. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review, as it means a lot to me. Thank you, and I'll be speaking to you in the next episode.